Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us. This is a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein. Today is episode 317. It's titled, How to Buy in a Hot Housing Market. I recently got an email from a listener. He's been listening about six months or so, has listened to well over 100 episodes of the show. He writes that he's relatively new to investing. He's been investing for three years now as he graduated from college in 2017. He's been saving for his first home purchase in Austin, Texas. He writes the Austin housing market is very hot at the moment arguably one of the hottest markets in the country, even with the recent effects of COVID-19. He points out the median sales price in Austin has increased over 11% since this time last year. And there are 45% fewer homes on the market now versus a year ago. He would like to buy a house in early 2021. But after seeing the market conditions, he's worried that he might be entering the real estate market at the wrong time. He has heard of stories from realtors and home buyers about individuals and families putting in offers of ten dollars to $15,000 over the asking price for homes that aren't even on the market yet, only to find out they did not win the bidding war. In short, he continues, I'm wondering if you could offer some general rules of thumb to look for as a first-time home buyer in a hot market such as Austin. I'm conflicted because I don't want to buy at the wrong time and potentially lose value in my home only after a few short years. However, at the same time, if this market were to continue at this pace for several years to come, buying in the near future, I think, might be the right move. He points out he's tired of handing over his money to landlords and would like to start building equity in a home to diversify his current return drivers. Austin is not the only hot housing market. There are a number of them. In fact, nationally in the U.S., housing is on fire. In August of 2020, there were 5.9 million homes sold on a seasonally adjusted annual rate. That's the highest number of homes since 2006. And it's being driven because the average 30-year fixed rate mortgage at the end of August was 2.94%. The median single family home price in the U.S. is up 11.7% in the past year, ending August 2020. That's the biggest annual increase since 2013. Sales of newly built homes are up 43% year over year, the highest increase since 1992. There have been about 1 million new homes built in the past year, the highest level since 2006. The market is being driven because of the low interest rates, which is pushing up the value of all assets. Plus, there's a desire for many, given COVID-19, to move out of their city, for example, 
out more into the suburbs of the country. So increased demand and reduced supply because of concerns regarding the pandemic. Some people don't want potential buyers traipsing through their homes. Others don't want to sell because they're not sure they'll be able to find something to buy. The frenzy to purchase homes has pushed up valuations. If we look at the value of household real estate, so the total value of houses and condos as a percent of economic output in the U.S. or GDP, it's 158%. Total value of all houses divided by GDP is 158%. That's up from 140% at the beginning of the year. The all-time high was 180% in 2007, and the recent low was in 2012 of 115%. This is data from Ned Davis Research. So the value of the housing stock relative to GDP is approaching that all-time high of 2007. And then if we look at the Case-Shiller Home Index, it has appreciated since 1953 on a real net of inflation basis of about 0.7% per year. That's the trend line. So if we statistically create a trend line, again, data from Ned Davis Research, that trend line increases at 0.7% per year. And then we can see, well, how much do current prices differ from that trend line? And right now, we're 15% above the trend line. In 2006, U.S. home prices were 40% above the trend line. And then by 2012-2013, they had fallen to 0.9% below the trend line. Home prices are above average when we compare them to GDP, when we compare them to the trend line. If we look at what the median existing home price is relative to family income, it's about three and a half times. That's 1.5 standard deviations above average. The average going back to 1982 is three times. The median existing home price is three times the median family income. The top was in 2006 at four times median family income. So houses are indeed more expensive than average. That does not mean that they're about to fall in price because they are being supported by low interest rates. In a, in a very low interest rate environment with mortgage rates at all times lows, we would expect home prices to be above average. If we look at the supply, which this listener mentioned, there's about a 2.8-month supply, an all-time low. And that's calculated by looking at the ratio of houses for sale to houses sold. So it's an estimate of how long the current for sale inventory would last given current sales amount, and only about 2.8 months. So not that many homes. Now, while this listener is contemplating buying a new home in a hot market, LaPerle and I have been also in the midst of that. If you've listened to this podcast over the years, you know we buy and sell a lot of houses. I left my former investment advisory firm, Fund Evaluation Group, who interviewed me in the podcast I released last week while I was on vacation. I left that firm in 2012. And right after that, we sold a custom-built home that we had built in 2005. We owned that home for eight years, the longest we've ever owned a home. And we lost money on that house. We built it for $100 a square foot and sold it for $80 a square foot. And so, yes, you can lose money on a house. It's more likely if you build a new house because homes can depreciate in value. Now, I didn't think $100 a square foot was very much for building a new house. Still, it fell in price. 
But since we sold that home in 2013, we have owned eight houses since. Some were remodels that LaPrell was working on. And these are not so much house flips because we're not fast at redoing a house. It's more a rehabilitation. We sold a house last year that we lived in and didn't use a realtor. We have not used a realtor to sell a house really since 2004. We're willing to pay a commission to a realtor that brings a buyer, but we have marketed our own house. And we did that last year with a house we sold in Idaho Falls. Put it on Zillow, put a sign out in front. In late July, we sold another house that we had. After selling that first house in Idaho Falls, we bought a smaller home that we were redoing. And we were worried about selling it during a pandemic. So in this case, we just put a sign out in front and it sold in two days for our asking price. We buy and sell a lot of houses and we've come to accept this is that we like to try on different houses. We get bored, to be honest. And that got us thinking about the house that we own in Phoenix. We have been back in Idaho at our cabin since mid-May. So we own that. We also have this house in Phoenix that we bought two years ago. Sort of under some pressure to buy something because our dog had gotten ill and we needed somewhere to stay because no one could watch for anymore. The previous two winters, we had traveled through the southern U.S. We'd also spent some time traveling in Mexico and we had a family member watch our dog, but she just couldn't do it anymore because our dog was nearly blind and deaf. So we bought a house in Phoenix and we've owned it for almost two years. The pandemic hit and we realized, like many people, this house is too small. We had our daughter home taking online university classes. We had our son and daughter-in-law with us also, and she was also taking online classes. My son was working remotely. I was working, and this house only had two beds. It had a the master and it had a, a guest bedroom and an office. And so we were trying to navigate the lack of space. Fortunately, there were outdoor spaces to sit and work, but we realized that just isn't going to work. So last week, LaPrell and I left Idaho and came down to Arizona to find a different house. We left Idaho with some trepidation. We had, haven't really traveled out of the state since we came up to Idaho in May. As I've mentioned, we've gradually gotten more comfortable navigating a COVID-19 world. I read a, a fascinating article, one of the best I've read recently on the pandemic. It's by Zenep Tufeci in The Atlantic. It was titled, This Overlooked Variable is Key to the Pandemic. She mentioned r not, which measures a pathogen's contagiousness, such as COVID-19. And I've talked about r not before. If the r not is three, it means one ill individual infects three other people on average. But she focused on another statistic, which is K, the measure of dispersion. She writes, after nine months of collecting epidemiological data, we know that this is an over-dispersed pathogen, meaning that it tends to spread in clusters. There are COVID-19 incidents in which a single person likely infected 80% or more of the people in the room in just a few hours. We have over-dispersion and super-spreading with many people not infecting anyone. She points out that multiple studies show that 10 to 20% of infected people may be responsible for infecting 80 to 90% of transmission. And that these super spreading clusters occur 
in poorly ventilated indoor environments where you have a lot of people congregating, such as weddings, at church, choirs, gyms, funerals, restaurants, especially when a lot of them are not wearing masks or singing or talking loud. So knowing that, we have avoided those situations. We haven't stayed in a hotel, and we did on the way down to Phoenix and then also last week in Tucson. Staying away from congregated indoor situations, bringing our own blankets and pillows, and hoping the person in the room prior to us hadn't been infected. We just don't know, but we have to navigate our lives still with this pandemic. We, like this listener from Austin, started looking for a house. And the Phoenix market is very similar, where you get multiple offers, often paying over the asking price. We decided we wanted to sell our house in Phoenix and go somewhere where it's less expensive, Tucson. Still a highly competitive market, but the price per square foot is lower. And the idea is, you know, can we get a a little bigger house for close to the same price that we sell ours in Phoenix? Based on that experience last week, here are some rules of thumb for navigating a hot housing market that LaPrell and I have applied as we've gone through the process this time and in previous situations when we bought a house. The first is get pre-approved for a mortgage. In a competitive housing market where there will be multiple bidders, the seller wants to have confidence that the transaction will close. So they'll either take someone that's willing to pay cash or somebody that has a approval for a mortgage. Now, I've not had a mortgage on a house since we built that house in 2005. We have paid cash, but with rates at all times low, I decided we want to get a mortgage. Turns out that's not so easy to do if you're self-employed. We still haven't got approved. I'm not sure we'll even get approved based on some of the COVID-19 additional requirements that are necessary because most mortgages are sold to agencies such as Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, and they have made the requirements more strict. But for a new home buyer, you want to get that approval in place. So you're in a stronger position to negotiate that house. Before we continue, let me pause and share some words from this week's sponsors. If you've been using Mint to manage your finances, you know they shut down several months ago. Well, let me tell you about the budgeting solution, the financial tracking solution I've been using for the past number of months. It's Monarch Money. Monarch Money is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. You can create custom budgets like I've done. You can set goals, collaborate with your partner. And now you can get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com David. What I like about Monarch is the ability to customize what I want to see. I have custom budget categories, and then I can go on to the dashboard and see where I'm above trend on some of my spending. I especially like that Monarch will never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying Monarch myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com David. That's M-O-N. A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash David for your extended 30-day free trial. We have a brand new sponsor to our show. It's Yahoo Finance. Yahoo's been around for decades. My first email outside of work was a Yahoo email address. 
But the financial side, I've used on occasion primarily to get data for dividend histories for particular funds or ETFs. But I was pleasantly surprised to get back on Yahoo Finance to see how it's evolved over the years. Now it's really a financial dashboard where you can get an understanding of what's going on with the markets. There are relevant articles from Bloomberg, Reuters, the Associated Press, and the Yahoo Finance team. You can look at the economic events calendar and see which data series are being released that day and what the consensus is. You can see the pulse of the markets at any time by going to Yahoo Finance. In addition, you could see all of your investments in retirement accounts in one place. With Yahoo Finance, you get a consolidated view of multiple accounts. Yahoo Finance serves as a financial hub for your retirement accounts, but also comprehensive financial news and analysis. You need to check out Yahoo Finance, particularly if you haven't been there in a while. Check it out at yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. The second rule of thumb is get an experienced realtor, somebody that knows the neighborhoods, that knows other realtors. In our case, we put an offer on a house and our realtor knew the, the, the listing agent and could better position and make our case because that's what your buyer agent is doing. They're negotiating for you. They are the ones trying to convince the listing agent to accept your offer. So you want somebody that's experienced. The third thing is to be very clear on what you want. Make a list of things that you would like in a new home. Which of the items on the list are non-negotiable? In our case, we needed enough bedrooms for when our adult children and their partners come to visit. That was non-negotiable. We needed a place that LaPrell could set up a studio for sewing and other projects. We wanted a place that was close to hiking and that we could walk the neighborhood. One of my top criteria is I didn't want a neighborhood with a lot of road noise. At our cabin in Idaho, it's very, very quiet. Our place in Phoenix is noisy. We recognize we'll be in the city, but there'll be some road noise, but we wanted to keep it to a minimum. And we wanted a view to be able to, to see into the distance. So we just weren't looking at our neighbor or a wall in a very, very small yard. And finally, we wanted some outdoor space where we could sit and admire the view. So those things were important. Hopefully, we could get all those. Maybe not. But we, we wanted to at least know what was a top priority. So that's the third rule of thumb. Then the fourth is do a lot of the legwork yourself to know the neighborhood. So LaPro and I, we drove down to Tucson. And then we spent two days just driving around, getting to know the city better. Now, we were focusing on Tucson because it was less expensive. It also is a higher elevation than Phoenix, so it's cooler. doesn't get as hot in the summer, even though we're not there. Obviously cooler in the winter, but on average, about five degrees cooler than Phoenix. It has less of a heat island effect. And it also gets almost 50% to double the rainfall each year than Phoenix. So it's more lush. While I've been to Tucson a half dozen times or so, we didn't know the neighborhood as well as we should have. So we spent time on Zillow, on Realtor.com, looking at houses, then driving neighborhoods, figuring out, okay, this is where we want to be. And then pointed out houses to our realtor that we wanted to look at. And that's where technology has changed. You don't need a realtor to find your house. 
you can find the houses and tell your realtor, this, these are the ones we want to look at. Now, their knowledge of neighborhoods is important. But again, their most important function is to walk you through the process, but also to negotiate on your behalf. So do a lot of the upfront work yourself and then work with your realtor to actually look at houses. So we spent two days driving around identifying houses, and then we spent just one day looking at houses. We looked at six of them. The fifth rule of thumb, then, is to ideally to tag team. Bring somebody along. In this case, LePro and I were together, along with a realtor. If you're looking yourself, if you're, if you're single, maybe bring a friend that maybe they'll notice stuff that you don't. In our case, LePro is very, very good at floor plans and functionality and layout. Extremely talented at it. So, I mean, that's what she's focused on. And she's got an incredible memory of details of a house and what's there. I'm not very good at that. So I, I focus on the mechanics. How old is the air conditioner or the furnace? What's the roof look like? What about the yard? How much work is that going to take? Sprinkler system. And how much noise is there outside? That's what I focus on. But that rule of thumb is, is to team up with somebody. Sixth is don't panic. It's easy to get caught up in the frenzy that we have to act now. We got to find this house because we're going to lose out because we're competing with everybody else. You have to be patient and accept the fact that eventually a house will, will come that will meet your criteria and you'll, you'll win the bidding war. We thought after looking at six houses that we had identified a house. It was way up on the western side of Tucson, overlooking the city, right near Saguaro National Park. Beautiful, beautiful spot. We loved it. We were going to make an offer on it. There was just one problem. It took me longer for it to sink in. LaPrell recognized it right away. The house was ugly, and it just was irredeemable. Just not an attractively designed house, particularly the layout. It was cavernous inside. It just echoed. It just, it's just not a good fit. We were also at a competitive disadvantage because it was too much money that we couldn't pay cash, and I hadn't gotten approved for a mortgage. So then we looked at, well, maybe we can get an equity line on one of our existing homes. But we were not set up to be competitive in bidding because we didn't have our financials in order to be able to act to give confidence to the seller that we could close. So we decided, all right, we're just not going to buy that house yet. We're going to see if we can get approved for the mortgage or, or figure something else out. So then the next day, we decided to drive around neighborhoods again. Maybe there was something we were overlooking. And we happened to find a house that... LaPrell had mentioned before, I didn't want to have anything to do with it because it was on a golf course. And that just seemed like a bad idea in Arizona, where there's a lack of water. And that's, that's another important component, is understand what are the environmental risks in the area that you're looking at. In Arizona, it's a desert. And so I'm very cognizant of the sources of where the water is coming from. We did look at one house in Phoenix that our realtor there showed us, a brand new house. We drove up. I happened to talk to the neighbor and asked him how he liked the neighborhood. If you could call it a neighborhood, because it was just outside Scottsdale, but the developer had put no roads in. We were dry. It was like driving in Mexico. Sandy roads. The houses had no wells. They actually hauled in the water. And he mentioned what he didn't like about living there was the dust from the lack of pavement and hauling in the water because he had a swimming pool and was losing 200 gallons of water per day through evaporation. Paying four cents a gallon per water now, but who knows how much it'll be in the future. 
So we wanted a house with some city services so that there was a diversified source of water and we weren't dependent on one well. In fact, right up there in the hills, west of Tucson, we talked to another neighbor who was so glad the city had put in water the week before her well went dry. We don't want to panic or settle in that having city services were pretty important to us, at least when it came to water. So you don't want to talk yourself into doing something. So the seventh thing is to, ideally, if you can, have a margin of safety. Buy the lower-priced house in the neighborhood. Do the work yourself. And so this house on the golf course was built in 1971. It has had only one owner. The golf course opened in 1959. This house was built about 11 years later. Just one owner. So it needs to be updated. It's a project for us. Another remodel. We'll be updating bathrooms in the kitchen, but the house is in great shape. It is on a golf course. I don't golf. And when you buy on a golf course, you want to know how is the house situated relative to the course. We're on the seventh hole, and it doesn't look like we're going to get pounded by tee shots, drives that go awry, from what I can tell. But this is definitely an experiment of living on a golf course. The house itself, the yard, it's all desert plants. It's Palo Verde and mesquite trees. So we don't have to water the yard. I presume they must water the golf course. But we have a margin of safety because we are one of the lower price houses in the neighborhood. And it sells for less per square foot than what we'll sell our house for here in Phoenix. Having that margin of safety is important if you're worried about the potential for home prices to fall. And we don't know if home prices will fall. Interest rates and mortgage rates could stay low for a number of years, and that could support these higher valuations. In addition, if you're in an area where people are moving from other states that are more expensive, so a lot of people are are leaving California and they're moving to Arizona and they're moving to Austin. And so that is pushing up prices. So you have that ongoing demand. And the eighth rule of thumb is to lower the stakes. This is not a life or death decision. If the house doesn't work out, you can move particularly if you have a margin of safety. While it's a competitive market, you're not locked in because while houses are expensive, it's not like 2007 where you had people buying two or three houses, you had mortgage fraud. This housing market is being driven by a lack of supply and very low interest rates and all-time low mortgage rates. I believe it's more sustainable, but home prices could fall a little bit. You just never know. So again, you want that margin of safety if you're a first-time home buyer. Maybe it doesn't meet all your criteria, but you can do the work on it, get some sweat equity, and get some protection that way. But just lower the stakes and realize that it doesn't have to be the perfect decision. A good enough house in a good enough neighborhood, it gets you started to hopefully build some equity. So we'll see. We put an offer on this house. It was accepted. We haven't listed our other house yet. We haven't figured out how we're going to coordinate the the move or when. Our offer was accepted because we did offer $10,000 over the asking price with an escalation clause where if somebody offered more than us, then our offer would go up by another $5,000 up to a cap that we set. And we were willing to pay cash. Now we have to scramble to, to get the cash, sell some investments. And then we'll get that replenished when we sell our other house. And I'm still going to get a mortgage. In this case, it'll be a cash out refinance because we 
are going to close before we get approved for a mortgage, if we get approved for a mortgage. So to summarize, for this new home buyer, get pre-approved for a mortgage. Get to where you are in a strong competitive position to make a bid for a house. Use an experienced realtor that can help negotiate on your behalf, that knows other realtors in the area and is very familiar with the market. Make a list of what's critical that you have that's non-negotiable and what you're willing to move on. Do the work ahead. Do your homework. Visit neighborhoods. Look on Zillow. Find the house that would fit and then share those with your realtor. Team up with somebody else as you look through the house so you don't overlook anything. Don't panic and don't settle. Be patient. The right house will come. Buy a lower-priced house for a given neighborhood so you have a margin of safety and can do a lot of the updates yourself. And finally, lower the stakes. Recognize that the house won't be perfect, but you're not going to be stuck there either, that you can always move and you'll learn from that experience. That then is episode 317. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. If you would like to learn more about investing, there's two ways that I can help. First, you can join the Insider's Guide email list, where you will get the show notes and links to that particular week's podcast episode, along with an essay on money investing in the economy, some of the best writing I do each week. And you can sign up for that at moneyfortherestofus.com. Second, if you're ready to get serious about your investing, you can access professional-grade portfolio tools, training, and a community when you join Money for the Rest of Us Plus. This membership community is there to help you invest like a professional. It's for those who choose to manage their own investments, and it provides tools and training to manage an institutional quality investment portfolio, to filter through the clutter and make wise financial decisions. You can learn more about Plus Membership at moneyfortherestofus.com. Everything I've shared in this episode has been for general education. I'm not considered your specific situation. I've not provided investment advice. This is simply general education on money, investing, and the economy. Have a great week.